Well, if you've got a Bible, feel free to open it to 1 Samuel. Uh, we continue on in our series, Jesus is King, as we look at the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 14. And if you were with us last week, you know uh, we are splitting this chapter in two. The first half of it is all about uh, the king's son, Jonathan, and the way that he led in battle. They were fighting against the Philistines. He was with his back against the wall, and he went against all odds. And he said, you know what? I'm going to stand on the promises of God. I'm going to believe in things unseen, and I'm going to trust that God, if he says we have victory, uh, then I'm, I'm going to go full steam ahead, and I'm going to let him provide. And so he showed us what it was like for a leader to make faith-based decisions, faith-based decisions. Now we're going to see his dad tonight. Uh, so same context, uh, small Israelite army and the Philistines who had thousands and thousands and they could have easily crushed them. Now the battle has uh, been basically won at this point. It's coming to an end, but we're seeing how Saul, King Saul, his decisions were based on uh, fear, um, uh, just worldly decisions how they cost him tonight. So we're going to see the contrast. One walked by faith, the other one walked by sight. And it wrecked his world and it hurt those around him. Now it's important um, that I kind of define what we mean when we talk by uh, talk about leading by fear. Because that we don't want you <laughs> to lead by fear. That's just uh, the theme that we see tonight. And so when we talk about um, leading by faith in contrast to leading by fear. What we're talking about is uh, fear in the sense that you make your decisions, okay? So whether you're a leader, whether you're not, whatever, you make your decisions based on what you see and how you feel. So your emotions and your circumstance, that's, your, that's, that's guiding you, all right? That, that's what we talk about tonight when we say decision-making based on fear. But on the flip side, decision-making based on faith is uh, seeking God and trusting that even though you don't see it, trusting that you can stand on his promises, uh, that he has a plan, and that you're going to honor him uh, in the decisions you make. And so Jonathan did that. Uh, Saul did the opposite. He, he, um, he was not a very good leader. And so we're going to see that tonight. If some of you, as we walk through this, some of you are going are gonna to think to yourself, I don't know. Sometimes I make, sometimes I make decisions based on you know, what God wants for me, some faith-based decisions. Other times, I, I do just give in to my emotions and my circumstances. Um, but I, I would guess that for some of us, a good chunk of us tonight, we're caught in a cycle. If we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're caught in one of these cycles. Now, one of them's good, okay? Faith-based decision-making, you're in a cycle of, hey, I, I don't really care. I got a decision to make. I don't really care how I feel. Or, or what's in front of me, what I see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up control, I'm going to seek God, and I'm going to have the peace that comes by walking in faith. Like that's a good cycle. You see that pattern in your life. Others, though, are going to see a, a different pattern. And, and that's that you find yourself, when it comes to stress, when it comes to decision making, overwhelmed by how you feel, overwhelmed by what you see, and that leads to insecurity, and it leads to fear, and it leads to quick decisions, and it leads to bad decisions, and it leads to regret, and it leads to consequence, and then it leads to just a joylessness. And so you say, I profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, but your life kind of sucks. Because you find yourself in a cyclical pattern of making these fear-based decisions. And not only that, but we're going to see tonight 
um, how living in that kind of pattern, a fear-based one, how it affects not only you, but it impacts those around you. So as we walk through this, ask yourself, um, am I letting, am I letting the Holy Spirit guide me in decision making? So whether you're a leader or not, don't matter. Am I letting the Holy Spirit guide me in decision making? All right, chapter 14, verse 24, we'll kick it off. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, Oh my, that's a thing. No, hold on. Different verse. We're, we're, we're off track pretty quick. Verse 26. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff, of his staff, that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day and the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. All right, let's stop there. First thing we see is that insecurity leads to bad decisions. If you're like Saul and you are, you are leading, you are making decisions out of fear, worldly decisions, you know insecurity leads to bad decisions. So here, here's the key here. If we go way back to verse 24, it says that they were hard-pressed. So the Israelites were fighting. They were in the middle of the fight, and they were exhausted. Saul didn't make this rash vow. He didn't make it, like, at the end of the day. He made it at the beginning of the day when he saw that somebody was missing from the camp. His son Jonathan, remember, had left and gone on this amazing journey of faith uh, with his armor bearer. And they were seeking who in the world, who, who was missing from among us? Because they heard some stuff going on in the Philistine camp. And they knew that the Israelites were somehow fighting them. And so Saul actually makes this earlier in the day, not knowing how God was going to provide and how this was going to be an amazing day of fighting for them. You ever make a decision that comes back to haunt you? Make a quick decision that you quickly regret? Saul had no clue because he was freaking out earlier in the morning. He had no clue that he would need his men to be strong by the end of the day because they were going to be beating up on the Philistines. He didn't know they were going to battle. He didn't even know they were going to battle. You see, the result of Saul's decision to make this rash vow, this quick vow to God, was, was that his army would be weak because they couldn't have anything to eat. But what was the core issue with his decision? The core issue is that instead of trusting God, instead of seeking God, when he saw that his son Jonathan was gone, when he thought, oh man, what has happened? And he starts freaking out. 
He, because of his own insecurity and his own desire for comfort and control of the situation, he makes all the people suffer by saying, nobody's going to eat until my enemies are avenged and this all gets worked out. You see, that's the core of worldly decision-making is an incredible selfishness. It's self-centered. It's all about you. You see, faith-based is, is seeking God's will and saying, you know, I'm going to trust him even in the midst of my craziness. And Saul's saying, you know what, I'm uncomfortable. I don't know where my son is, and I'm just going to make everybody suffer until this all gets worked out. I think we all have made some quick decisions that we regret. I don't know, maybe I'm alone in that. I don't think so. I don't know if you know this or not. Uh, I came from um, rough and rugged Kansas town of about 150 people, and uh, a lot of exciting things happening there. When I was in middle school, I, uh, I started a gang. I don't know, this is probably a surprise to most of you, but started a gang with um, three of my friends. It was just all guys. No girls could be in this gang. And we were in the fifth or sixth grade, and I remember on a Saturday morning, we got together. We were just so bored, and we said, let's start a gang, and we were so pumped up about it. And we said, there's got to be some kind of initiation process in this. And... Um, and the only thing that we had, we were just roaming around our little town. The only thing we had was to, to do some kind of like vandalism or something. And because there's, there's just not much else to do there. And, and so we found a, uh, a bottle of red nail polish that some girl had dropped out of her purse. And, and kind of the, the big like event for the day to kick off this gang was to, um, no, we didn't put it on ourselves in case that's where you thought this was going was to, to, to throw it at our, at our uh, high school. And so we threw it. I know this sounds ridiculous. This is the point of the story that it's stupid, okay? So just know that's where it's going. So we threw this thing against the side of the brick building, and it, and there's just red nail polish that splat all over the side of it. We disbanded as a gang at about 4 p.m. that day, <laughs> and that was it. No one knew that we even started a gang. No one knew that it ended that day. That was it. But for the rest of my middle school and high school years, every time I went between the middle school and high school, I saw evidence of that stupid day on the side of our building with one little splat of red. And I always thought, even, even within months, I thought, what kind of idiots are we that we would go and throw that against the building? Sounds stupid, doesn't it? I think a lot of our lives are marked by some of those stupid <laughs> signs, are they not? We got some credit card debt because we went off to college, and mom said, you got to have a credit card for emergencies, but then we thought, yeah, emergency means lots of purses and dollar menu. And so we racked up $1,000 in debt in the first month, and we never did pay it off. For some of us, it's weird, broken relationships. And you think, man, I don't even want to be Facebook friends. Why are they commenting on my stuff? They're stalking me. This is weird. Leave me alone. You pray that you move so that you don't ever have to run into them randomly at Walmart. You just think, oh, there's drama there. I think we got all kinds of signs from bad decisions in our lives. We make them quick. And we don't seek God's will in it. You see, when stress hits us, every single one of us on a daily basis, Right? You can, you can say, I, Jesus is my Lord all day long, but you have to actually let him be Lord. When stress hits and we got to make decisions, 
subconsciously, the first decision that any of us have to make is, are we going to seek God and his voice in this, or are we going to be God? Are we going to seek God, or are we going to be God? You see, faith-based decision-making waits on God. It waits on God because faith-based decision-making realizes that even the basics of my day, like just it's a boring summer day, but I'm, I'm going about my day. Like I do not belong to myself anymore. I am the Lord's possession. He is not just a guidance uh, force in my life. He is my creator. He is my savior. He owns me, so I've got to wait on him. I can't move forward until I hear his voice. Sometimes you know his voice in a matter of seconds. Sometimes it takes days or weeks or months. On the flip side, fear-based or worldly decision-making says, you know what? (laughs) My emotions are going to get the best of me. My circumstances are overwhelming, and they make uh, this decision quickly. I got to take control of this situation before it gets out of hand. Have you ever been there before? How many times is on a daily basis you find yourself making decisions one after another because you're like, hey, the situation got out of control. I got to take control of the situation. And yet it just leads to one bad decision, to one bad decision, to another, to another, and you regret it. By the end of the day, you're looking back saying, man, I shouldn't, I should have waited. I should have sought God. I should have sought God. What would you say, like if you're just talking to your friends, what would you say is your primary way of making decisions? Like what's your process? Or what's your process for handling stress? Like do you, I mean, do you pray about it? Maybe hours after you already made the decision? Or when you got to make a decision, and keep in mind, I know there's, there's you just got to make quick decisions throughout the day, right? I get it. Not all quick decisions are bad. But do you, do you really go to the Lord? Because here's the deal. If you say Jesus is Lord, but you don't ever include him on any of your decision making, he's not really Lord. He's not really Lord. And if you don't find yourself, I'm not saying you got to just stay constantly in prayer, but I'm saying (laughs) it might be good to stay constantly in prayer. If you don't go to the Lord when it comes to your decisions, big and small, you might just be forfeiting not only guidance and wisdom, but peace and comfort and hope and clarity. And, and what you find if you don't go to him is you find that that's exchanged for frustration and anger and insecurity and fear. And it just spirals out of control. And I would even say this, for some of us, praying ain't good enough. Praying ain't good enough. What I mean is, some of us, we say, yeah, I pray. But you pray just enough to give God that token prayer, like, hey, God, I'm checking in with you. I'm going to do my own thing, but I just want to say, God, guide me in this. Um, And and, um, trusting that whatever you do is exactly what God wants. Sometimes it is. But here's what I would say. When you pray, some of us, we need to get good at waiting in our prayers. We need, to, we need to wait to when the end result is one of trust and full dependence. Because here's what a lot of us do. We pray, but then we feel just as insecure after the prayer as we did beforehand. But if God's supernaturally in your decision making, shouldn't you have some peace? Where's the, where's the peace coming from? Where's the clarity? Where's the comfort? Sometimes God's saying, I don't want you to just pray quickly to me. I want you to take some time. I want you to take some time. Saul didn't. 
Verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint because they didn't have anything to eat. And the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Second thing we see, if you're going to make some fear-based decisions, there will be a trickle-down effect. People are going to be impacted. People are going to be impacted. You see, the, the curse that Saul had, had put on the people that they couldn't eat until the day was done, that is over at this point. So the sin isn't that they're eating. The sin is that they're eating these animals with blood. You see several times, four or five times in uh, Leviticus, you see in, in Genesis, you see several other places in the Old Testament, God strictly forbids his people eating animals with the blood. So they were eating clean animals according to the Torah, according to the Old Testament law. They were eating the right animals, but just like Saul and some of his mistakes, they were doing the right thing the wrong way. And so what God's word is telling them, and they know this, they should know this, is that you got to hold up that animal. you got to let the blood drain out of this thing, okay? Because blood represented the life, and it was important, and, and God didn't want them eating the blood with the meat. He wanted the blood to drain out. So Saul's saying, hey, what are you guys doing? Let me help you. He rolls a big stone so that they, instead of cutting up these animals on the ground, he, they can put them on the stone and let the blood roll off and then not be in sin by eating the blood. And they actually do it. So to Saul's credit, he, he tries to, to make up a little bit for their sin. He tries to help them out. It says, though, that they pounced on the plunder. <laughs> Like, they were obviously in a position, emotionally, physically, that they were desperate for some food. Like, they didn't, they weren't just fat and happy and were like, well, let's just stumble into sin today. They were worn out. They were worn out. You see, Saul didn't make them sin, but Saul's bad decision led them into an environment conducive to sin. His bad decision, his sinful decision, exhausted them. And put them in a place of weakness and temptation. Some of us, we have those environments around us. Where, where we, we are in such a rut of faithless decision making. A lack of seeking God in our decisions. That one sin leads to another. And it leads to those around us finding themselves tempted to make the same mistakes. I think I've mentioned this before. But there was a recent uh, Stanford University study on cheating, plagiarism within the students on campus. And it said that if students had just one or two friends ask them about, hey, do you, do you want to cheat with us? We're cheating. Do you want to cheat? That the percentage of those who actually would cheat was actually relatively low. But the statistics showed that if any student had at least five other students who were cheating, ask them to get involved in cheating, that it was almost unanimously always them 
falling into the temptation of cheating. The, the, the key number was five people. If five of y'all are cheating and want me to get involved, I'm going to be a cheater. So the end of the study essentially said they chose whether to cheat or not when they chose who their friends were with. And some of us, we, we are, we're attracted to other people who are making bad decisions. And, and so we're in an environment at home, at work, where we show up and we're like, ooh, they're gossiping, maybe I can minister to them. And now it's, it's four months later, and all your coworkers, instead of them repenting from their sin, now you're just one of the best gossipers in the group. We're at home, and we think, man, I just, it's hard to be around everyone who's complaining. All of a sudden, a few weeks later, you're complaining with the best of them, right? It's an environment conducive to sin. Have you, um, have you ever found your decisions hurting other people, bringing them down? Let me, let me just give you a couple examples. You ever, um, you ever locked your keys in your car and just been freaked out? And gone on a rampage until it got fixed. Or maybe you ever lost your wallet or your glasses. And instead of just sitting back and saying, okay, take a deep breath. God, you know (laughs) how this is going to work out. You know where this is. Even if something, even if I don't find it, like you're sovereign, you can take care of this. So let me just, let me just walk with you a little bit. But instead of that, you're just like, man, I can't go on. And you freak out, and you call up your friends, and you say, I need help. And you call up your other friends, I need help, and your family. And you get them all involved. And they run around trying to help you find your stuff. You say, yeah, I've been there. The problem isn't if it's a one-time thing, but some of us have made a lifestyle out of that. A lifestyle of bad decisions that create a drama where we are the star of the show. And here's the problem. When you're the star of the show, God ain't getting any glory. When you're the star of the show, you're creating an environment of not only selfishness, but the potential for other people to fall into a trap of sin. You see, when you're the star of your own drama, and you're in a pattern of making bad decisions over and over and over and over and over, and your friends are so used to when they hang out with you, they're going to hear about your drama. They're going to hear about your same old bad decisions. They're going to hear about, hey, I I, I came to church on Sunday, but none of the other decision-making in your life have anything to do with God. And at first, they want to minister to you, but after a while, they start to get frustrated. And they start to grumble, and they start to complain. And you're thinking, why are you complaining about me? And all of a sudden, they're sinning because if you, (laughs) you gave them an opportunity that made them want to sin. You see how that happened? Like this, is, this is what the Israelites blamed Moses for. They say, you led us out into the desert. You put us in the environment where we're grumbling and complaining. Moses is like, F off. But some of us, we've got two, three, fourth generation of, of sin in our lives because of some bad decisions back here that we never got a hold of, and we're just seeing it spiral out of control, and everyone involved in it is now making the same mistakes. Not only do your sins trickle down and impact others, sometimes they're reflected in others. Eventually, they're going to be reflected in others. I joke, you guys know it, if you've been here more than 10 minutes, you know, I joke about weddings, about not liking to do weddings. I like it because I like to pour into people, but I don't like it. 
because I don't like to pour into people. No, I'm, I, <coughs> it's, it's weddings, you know, it is what it is. And, and I joke about it, even though I really do, um, I like walking with, with couples through that. Um, it's just been a joke up until this point, at least so I thought. Until last week, we had a wedding in the church. About midweek, one of the other team members at Crosspoint started complaining about weddings and how it kind of got in their environment and messed up their stuff and it was a hassle for them. I said, hey, knock it off. Don't complain about weddings. It's okay. And God said to me, right, where do you, where do you think they learned that? Hmm. A few days later, the wedding actually comes. I spend hours involved in the wedding, helping do all the wedding stuff, officiate the wedding. Afterwards, I'm exhausted. I get uh, a text message from someone else, separate from the other person, someone else on our leadership team, saying they left this place dirty and nasty in my area of the church, and what is going on? Didn't they clean up afterwards? And I was like, hey, relax. Don't complain. God's kind of like, where did they learn that, right? Kid you not, days later, I had different people who didn't have anything to do with leadership, people who wouldn't even, shouldn't even known about any of the repercussions of this wedding party leaving things dirty when they shouldn't have, coming up and complaining about this wedding that I didn't even know they knew happened. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world do we got like half a dozen people all barely connected to one another and this wedding? How do we got all these people complaining about the same stinking wedding? And the truth is, because I set up an environment conducive and permissive of complaining about weddings. I thought I was being cute. And God's saying, you're, you're a sinner. Like, I have, I, I got to take responsibility for that. I got to take responsibility for that. If you want to stop the damage of the trickle-down effect, there's a couple things you can do. Number one, is you got to make sure that one person's sin doesn't dictate your decisions. Like you might be in an environment right now at work, at home, where everyone is making the wrong decisions. They ain't got to make decisions for your life. Because they're not Jesus. God's not sitting back there saying, oh, it's excusable because everyone around you is doing it. They don't dictate your decisions. So you got to be a self-feeder you got to be able to have a strong relationship with the Lord where, hey, you know what, even if I'm in the midst of sin, I can still make holy decisions. And number two, you got to love and embrace repentance. Because here's the thing. God's people fall into sin. We know it. If we're without sin, we're liars. And so if you, at some point in your walk with Jesus, become so <laughs> self-righteous that you don't think you need to repent anymore then the damage from your own bad decisions because you won't take responsibility for them are going to continue to trickle down because you're in denial that you got issues some of the folks that are making bad decisions around you are seeing you saying i learned this from you and you're saying no one could learn anything bad from me god's saying do you love repentance do you even know you need repentance you're not you're not perfect yet when you see Jesus face to face, you're perfect. When you, when you, your soul, the second you place your faith in Jesus, is perfect. But until then, your life will be continuously formed to be more like the image of God's Son. But you're still a work in progress. Embrace repentance. 
That's how you stop the trickle-down effect. Verse 36. And then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. So Saul, after all his goofy decision-making, finally has a choice. He can seek God or go do something else. It didn't register that he should seek God first, but uh, the priest says, let's do this. And Saul, to his credit, says, okay, let's seek his will in this. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. So there's an assumption that if God's not talking to them, there's, a, there, there's sin in the camp. Something's gone wrong. And Saul recognizes that. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. So keep in mind, he doesn't have a clue that Jonathan is the one who sinned. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Just heads up, leadership 101. When it comes to guilt and innocence of the people you lead, don't separate yourself from them. <laughs> you're in this together. If they're in trouble, you're in trouble with them. And Saul says, Israel, y'all hang out over there. Me and my boy, we're going to be over here. Therefore, Saul said, oh, Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, oh, Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Third thing we see for our bad decisions, our fear-based decisions, our worldly decisions, somebody's got to pay the price. Somebody's got to pay the price. So Saul, again, realizes there's some sin going on here. There's some kind of issues. Um, let's seek God and find out who in the world has caused this sin because the Lord stopped talking to us. Something went down. And he says, hey, even if it's my son Jonathan, we're going to have to kill him. Like we're going to do whatever it takes to get rid of this sin. But little did he know it is his son Jonathan. So they cast lots, right? They're, they're, they're rolling dice over who, who it's going to be. Now, the words in there, Urim and Thummim, uh, these are Hebrew words that, honestly, uh, we, don't, we don't have a clue. <laughs> we, we don't know exactly what they mean. If we did, we would just translate them into what they mean um, instead of just leave them. But the gist of it is, um, is that one is the negative of the other uh, being a positive. So basically, it's a yes or no. It's a guilt or innocence. He's saying, God, um, tell us who's guilty and who's, who's innocent. Um, the Thuman was actually part of, uh, it, was a, it was a metal piece on the breast pa- breastplate of the high priest. And, and so they're thinking maybe they used that as they were casting lots. And on one side it was Urim, one was Thuman. Long story short, we just don't know. But it's Saul saying, hey, God, tell us who's guilty and who is innocent. But Saul's overwhelmed. He's got to be overwhelmed at the price for his bad decisions. Think about it. Have you ever made so, like has your decision making ever been so bad, so bad, so far out of God's will, that in order for it to be (laughs) made right, 
God's holiest dude has got to be killed. Like, talk, talk about going astray. Jonathan is the one who's got to be killed. You know it's bad when you make bad decisions at the beginning of the day, and at the end of the day, it requires your family to die for it. And that's where Saul is right now. That's where he's at. So he knows he's messed up, and he's worked harder and harder and harder throughout this chapter to make up for it. He, he's sacrificing for it. Okay, let's not sin against God anymore. He's building an altar. He's saying, hey, let's seek God. Let's, let's do whatever it takes to get rid of this sin. And he still has to give more. See, that's what happens. It's one thing to make decisions that are worldly, to fear. It's another when it comes to your response to your own bad decisions. You see, when you realize, I've made some goofy decisions lately, how do you handle that? Do, do, you, do you sulk and just say, well, my life stinks? Do you take responsibility? Do you work harder to try to make it right? Some of you, you know that's where you're at. You, you're just working hard to right all the wrongs in your life. And God might, he might have you do some things. He might have you go back and, and ask for forgiveness from some people. He might have you do some of that. But I'm telling you, if you go down that route where you're like Saul saying, I'm going to try to make up for my own mistakes. You're going to get to the point where you fall on your face and say, I can't give anymore. Well, everything I do, like it's never good enough. You ever been in a relationship where you just told the other person, I, I, uh, everything I do, none, nothing I do is good enough. Nothing I do is good enough. And God's saying, finally, some truth. Come out of your mouth. Finally, some truth. But somebody has got to pay the price. And for Saul, the price, the cost is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Faith-based decision says, you know what? I know Jesus paid the price for my mistakes, even as a believer, even as someone who others look and say, man, you're leading a life group. You're leading a grow group. You're, you're, you're going to church. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and you still make goofball mistakes. <laughs> Jesus dying on that cross still pays the price for those. For those of you who feel like, man, I, I, I'm brand new to this, but I'm making mistakes. Jesus still pays the price. Fear-based decision-making says, man, I got I to gotta, I gotta right my own ship. I got to right my own ship. You got to remind yourself, you can't right your own ship. Somebody has paid the price, and it doesn't need to be you right now. It needs to be you trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross. A year and a half ago, when uh, we moved back to Salina and we bought a house just a couple blocks from here, we had several houses we were looking at on the market. And um, this was by far the cheapest and so economically, it just seemed like made the most sense. And so we bought it, and we were excited about it. We were excited about the mortgage payment being as low as it was. And it looked like it had been fixed up, and it was in pretty good shape. But some of the things in there were older, like in an older furnace and stuff. But you're thinking, hey, man, we've owned four homes in the last seven, eight years. <laughs> you know, it ain't, like, it ain't like we're planning on being here for the rest of our lives in terms of that house. But who knows? Thought it was a good purchase. Within the first three months, within the first three months, the furnace goes out. Three, four thousand dollars for a new furnace. The sewer backed up. Gurgle, 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 gurgle. 
You know what it's like to come down your basement, finished basement or carpet, and have sewage coming back up and just coating your basement? Thank God my sniffer's broke. <laughs> the electrical in the house, like the electrical panel, went out. Breakers were just tripping. It was old. It was nasty. Had to replace the entire electrical panel. Just the first few months. But by the grace of God, even though it was one of four homes that we purchased in the last seven, eight, nine years, our realtor asked the seller to pay for a warranty, a $700 warranty. And they paid for it. And so every single one of those things that cost thousands and thousands of dollars total was paid for by the seller. And so on one hand, every time something bad would happen, be like, man, it is falling apart. Like, did we make a horrible decision? Well, we might have, but we don't have to sulk in it because right now someone else has paid the price. Jesus has paid the price. Now, as Paul says rhetorically, <laughs> should we go on sinning? Because where grace abounds, when sin, where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more, right? No, we don't go on sinning. You get overwhelmed by the beauty of what God has done for you. You live differently. You turn from it. But you've got to remind yourself over and over, somebody needs to pay the price. You see, this is what Saul does. Saul, Saul just goes on thinking, whatever. We're going to see that in a few verses. But believers, we write the ship by realizing Jesus did it for us. I think, um, I think some of us need to understand the invitation of the good news of Jesus to rest. Come all ye who are weary, who are heavy laden. Isn't that a beautiful invitation we get in Matthew? It's not just an invitation, it's a command. You can't come saying, I want the blessing of Jesus dying on the cross, but I'm also going to be paying the price for my own sins. The gospel is useless to you if you're saying, I'm going to do just enough to where I feel like I'm, I'm paying the price. God's saying, you're either 100% in trusting that Jesus has paid the price for you, or it's worthless to you. He's either perfect and his sacrifice is perfect, or it don't mean anything to you. So how, how, do, you, how do you do that? How do you, how do you accept the consequences? Because we know, we know that in life, like you can, you can commit a crime, and I could say, man, you, you can find forgiveness in Jesus. But you still got earthly consequences, right? Like you, you, you still got to go to jail. <laughs> you still got to go to jail. So how do you accept the consequences and yet have a different perspective in the midst of it? Recognizing Jesus paid the price and, and your soul has been made clean, your conscience can be made clean, you, you realize this, that even though I've made some bad decisions, I got some debt, I got some broken relationships, I got some junk going on in life, it is not God's wrath on me. But his wrath was taken on his son 2,000 years ago on the cross. And when you understand that, you shift your perspective. You deal with, hey, there's some earthly fallout that I just got to walk through. It ain't going away. I can't just say, oh, God forgave me, so everyone else, <laughs> I'm backing away from the mess. 
But you realize, you know what? This ain't God's wrath. It might be discipline, but it ain't God's wrath. This is an opportunity for redemption. This is an opportunity for God to get glory. That no matter how broken your situation is, it is an opportunity for the God of the universe to get some glory in your life. Listen, you love it when preachers get up and tell you about all the craziness that they experienced and they had some jailhouse testimony or something like that. Why You love it, why? Because God gets glory with their goofball decisions. <laughs> Amazing testimonies aren't usually made from good decisions leading up, right? Until they meet Jesus and decide to follow him. They're made because of a series of bad decisions. And God saying, you know what? I got more power than your bad decisions have power. If you follow me, I'll save you from this. If you trust me, I'll save you from this. I think there's a lot of believers who trust God to fix and save their souls, but not their situation. God's saying, if you trust me, if you think I got enough power to save your soul, how much more can I get in the middle of your mess today and use it to bring me some glory? Someone's got to pay the price. Remind yourself it's Jesus and rest. Last but not least, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. So Jonathan's stepping up like a man. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. So Saul's about to kill his kid. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed, rescued Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. And when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck down the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishbi, and Malki Shua. And the names of his daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinanom, and the daughter Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. Keep that in mind. All the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Last but not least. If you're a bad decision maker, you've got to learn to move forward. You've got to learn to move forward. So Saul, gosh, you got a picture. He's standing next to his son saying, we got to kill you. Finally, <laughs> finally Saul decides to be obedient, right? Like out of all the decisions he made, the one he, he's finally obedient is, well, I guess I'll kill my son. Like he's just so, he's just goofy. And the people say, no. You ain't going to do that. We're going to rescue him because he's actually following God. How weird. How awkward is it that the people have to save your son from you and your bad decisions? And then what does he do? He just goes on with life. And he keeps on fighting the same battles over and over and over. 
Let me ask you, is that you? Is that you? Are you sitting there thinking to yourself, yeah, I don't know that I include Jesus in in the decision-making process of most of my decisions. And I don't want to be in this pattern uh, of living based on my circumstances and my emotions and being insecure and overwhelmed and and then just being joyless. But are you just going to keep on going on fighting the same battle? Like, what is going to change? You see, when the gospel is revealed to you and it takes a hold of your heart, you can't help but to surrender and say, you know what, today is the day. Today is the day. Something's got to change. Whether you've believed for years and you just find yourself experiencing this junk or you're brand new to all this, today has got to be the day. But isn't there something isn't there something in our, in our sin nature that just says, but I gotta keep fighting this battle. I gotta keep fighting this battle. Like I know that I got junk going on, but like I just have a hard time trusting God fully. I know that Jesus paid the price. I just have a hard time trusting him fully. Listen, the day I got sentenced to jail and I saw my dad's face and I saw the hurt and the pain as he looked in my eyes, we didn't say a word to each other guards led me out. I just, I just looked at him. He had tears in his eyes. I knew it cut him to his soul, the bad decisions that I had made based on my emotions and circumstances. I had a lot of time to think about that. You know, some of the bad decisions we make in life grip us and say, we don't want you to move forward. We want this to haunt you forever. And I sat in that for months. But I paid my debt to society. I I went through and and sat in that jail cell. I did everything that the probation officers asked me to. And finally, I looked at him and said, can I move on? Can I move on with my life? He said, yeah. So I moved to another town, went to school. But I'll never forget when I moved to that town and my dad took me down there. And we went to that first rental apartment complex to to find a place to live and we're filling out the application and he in front of me pulls uh, the secretary aside and says you know my son points over him you know he's a felon right you know he's a convicted felon right she said no it's okay afterwards man we had a blow up the gist of that blow up is when are you going to move on And trust that what the judge said I needed to do, I did. And when when are you going to stop holding it over my head? It's one thing for me to move on. But what's stopping you? And the truth is, as much as I love my dad, he knew my wickedness. And he just couldn't trust that the price had been paid. That the ship had been righted. I'm telling you what, if you find yourself needing to break the cycle of some godless decision-making, trusting that what you've done, God has forgiven, you need to know you can walk in faith because the Father is looking at His Son saying, I am well pleased. What He did on the cross is exactly what I sent Him to do, and it is more than enough. And if the Father in Heaven is seeing His Son's work and saying, it is is finished it is finished how much more can you let your soul let that truth sink in 
and trusted that you can rest and stop trying to fix your own junk. Stop trying to fix your own junk. I'm going to sum this up. There's a couple things that got to happen when we leave here. Number one, if you want Jesus to be Lord of your life, you got to truly believe that his plan for you, that his guidance over you is better than your own plan and your own wisdom. Like you can't just say it, you got to truly believe it. Otherwise, when it comes to making decisions, you're going to go back to your relying on yourself. And number two, we've got to make our abiding in Jesus, our seeking of God, we've got to make it proactive and not reactive. For some of us, the problem is we're seeking God and trying to build our house on the rock in the middle of a storm. And his command was, build your house on the rock so that when the storm comes, you will stand firm. Some of us get caught off guard. We're like, oh man, I should have sought God in that. I should have sought God in that. I should have sought God. If our predisposition is, yeah, man, I'm seeking God when the times are good, when times are bad. Like I'm investing in the relationship. Man, I'm in God's word. I know, I know God's word before I even need to use it. It is hidden in my heart before I even need to look it up. I know God's voice before I'm calling out in the wilderness saying, God, please, are you there? I'm familiar with his voice already. I have the relationship set up. I've got an environment not conducive to sin, but conducive to holiness because I'm abiding in Jesus daily. And so you don't have to worry about getting caught off guard when it comes to decision making. You're spirit led at the beginning of a day. So I don't know what God's asking you to do. But there's a step. And I'm saying we need to take that. Whether it's giving your life to him for the first time. Placing your faith in him. Tonight or whether it's believing the same things you've believed for a long time, but it's just a little more sure in your soul. Whether it's being disciplined and saying, God, I know things are good right now, but I don't want to wait till things are bad to get to know you, to devote myself to you. Take it. Because Jesus is a better king than Saul. Jesus is a better king than Saul because Saul, this is chapter 14 summed up, Saul had bad, godless decisions based out of fear and insecurity that should have led to the death of his own son, which would have devastated his kingdom and his people. But God, in an amazing decision, based out of love, sent his son to die for you and I so that we could be included in a kingdom that he's about to build. He's a much better king than Saul. And he's worth trusting. Let's pray.